Welcome to another Griffith University podcast. Okay, everyone. Thanks for coming this morning on the very first day of semester one. So this is a very, right. very okay. impressive turnout. So welcome, everyone. And it's um, my great pleasure today to introduce uh, Michael Williams, who's a distinguished visiting fellow at Chatham House in, in London. Uh, I'll, I'll just tell you a little bit about Lord Williams before I introduce the topic and before he, he gives us a presentation this morning. Um, Michael is Distinguished Visiting Fellow at Chatham House. He's a, a Governor of the School of Oriental and African Studies and a trustee of the BBC. He's also a member of the House of Lords. He served with the UN in Cambodia and the Balkans between 92 and 96, and he was Director for Asia and the Middle East in the UN Department of Political Affairs in New York uh, between 2005 and 2007. Between 1999 and 2005, Michael was special advisor to two British foreign secretaries, I think the late Robin Cook yes, um, yeah. and, and Jack Straw. In his final UN posting uh, in 2008 to 2011, he was UN Undersecretary General in the Middle East. Uh, Michael has his PhD from the School of Oriental and Asian Studies, which looked at Islam and revolt in colonial Indonesia. So Michael's very uh, deeply immersed in, in questions of uh, change uh, in Southeast Asia. Last year he was a member of the UK parliamentary delegation to, to Indonesia. And I think I'm right in assuming that from your website that you're also fluent in Indonesia. Yes. yes. So Michael, look, thank you so much for coming today. And uh, thanks to our, our friends at the British High Commission for arranging Michael's visit. Michael is going to talk to us today on the topic of troubled waters, tensions in the South China Sea. So, Michael. Okay, thank you very much, Andrew, and uh, it's a real pleasure to be here. It's actually my first visit to uh, Brisbane, let alone to uh, Griffith University. I mean, you could have done something about the weather. I mean, uh, it was one of the reasons why I wanted to get away from London in, uh, in February. But there, there, there we are. Um, as uh, Andrew said, uh, maybe I'll say a little about my academic background and perhaps also about Asian studies in the, in, in the UK. Uh, I trained on Southeast Asia at SOAS, the School of Oriental and African Studies, uh, and did my master's and PhD on uh, Southeast Asia. And I spent some, quite some time here over the years, but latterly far more time in the Middle East, both actually in the region and working on the region in government and uh, in the UN. And I suppose that's partly of a re reflection of the seriousness of the problems uh, in the Middle East, the numerous conflicts and uh, sadly wars that we have seen in, uh, in recent years. So now that I'm sort of retired, as it were, from active uh, diplomacy, it's a real pleasure for me to come back to my first love to uh, Southeast Asia. Um, and I, the past year I've been to Indonesia twice and also to Singapore, Thailand and, and Burma. And the, the contrast between the, uh, the realities of contemporary Southeast Asia uh, and those of the Middle East are so stark, I, I find. Um, and within the course of my uh, career over the past 30 years or so, one has seen extraordinary development in Southeast Asia, economically, socially, and indeed, uh, especially I think in the past uh, decade and a half, politically, leaving aside the, the sort of uh, 
communist governed states of, uh, of Indochina, in all these countries uh, you've seen, I think, quite significant moves towards representative government, if not towards real democracy, uh, all of them with, with flaws. Uh, that that uh, uh, goes without saying, uh, in some cases more than uh, in others. But when I contrast that to the Middle East, I see a different uh, picture, epitomized at the moment, I suppose, by the extraordinary uh, crisis in Syria, which is very profound um, and which shows every sign of migrating into all the neighboring countries. I was also last weekend in, uh, in Egypt, and whilst one, in a way, expected... Uh, and needed the overthrow of, of Mubarak, just as of Suharto earlier. The, the contrasts of the, the transitions in Egypt and Indonesia are quite striking to me, even though in the case of Egypt, of course, we're still in the, uh, the early days. But the divisions in that society between secular and Islamist uh, are very deep and uh, very, very troubling. A few words about Asian studies in the UK. As Andrew said, I'm head of the Asia program at Chatham House, uh, which you like to think is a, a leading um, think tank and also a governor at SOAS. Uh, SOAS will be celebrating in two years' time, 2016, its centenary. It's still the place to study the languages, cultures and societies of Asia and Africa in the UK with uh, a breadth in all the social sciences uh, and in the, the languages that no other British or European university can match. I mean, there are other centres in the UK and Sheffield University with a big centre on Japan and the Koreas uh, and then big China centres at Oxford and at Nottingham. But still so, as I think, is, is a, a quite remarkable school in the sort of um, uh, firmament of... Uh, British universities and indeed of, of, of European universities. We still think a lot about Asia, particularly about Southeast Asia, and I think the academic study of these regions is more advanced in the UK than in, in any of our European uh, partners. Uh, and one very healthy thing in the past decade is that we've begun to get many students from the region, not as many as you do, obviously, but I, I'm really surprised at the, the number of Indonesians I bump into now in London and elsewhere uh, who are, uh, are coming to, to study. Now, i chosen as my topic for today the troubled waters, the South China Sea. Now, I feel a bit like bringing coals to Newcastle, as, uh, as, as we would say, uh, in as much as this is kind of on your doorstep. One of the things I found about coming back from the Middle East was to see this again. Now, in another sort of part in my career, I was uh, working for BBC World Service in Bush House, which, by the way, still broadcasts in the, a whole array of, of Asian languages. And uh, in the 1980s there, I was often writing about this subject. So it was with a sense of déjà vu that uh, you know, one comes back to it my goodness, nearly 30 years uh, later. Um, and when I come back to it and uh, look at it, it seems to me the issues are now sort of more stark. Uh, 
more dangerous. Perhaps not as threatening at the moment in um, February 2013 as they looked in uh, the middle of uh, 2012. But I was in Washington last uh, September and gave some presentations there and uh, also met with colleagues in the Pentagon and the State Department and there were a lot of worries about the situation and the potentiality for something to go wrong and uh, badly wrong. Last year at Chatham House we did uh, a series about regional organizations uh, around the world and I had the, the luck or the misfortune of speaking about two organizations. One was the Arab League and the other was ASEAN. And that also a great contrast and tells you volumes about the, the regions which they reflect. It seems to me that ASEAN actually is one of the most successful uh, regional organizations in the contemporary world. You know, when you go to meetings of the, the Arab League, you know, the ghost of Nasser, as it were, is still stalking the corridors. Not much has changed in that heavy sort of state politics of uh, the Middle East. That, I think, has changed in ASEAN. Now, remarks or, or, or talks on ASEAN don't necessarily draw large crowds in, uh, in London. But sometimes, if you're a speaker, you are helped by events. And I was certainly uh, helped by events in my presentation last summer on July the 19th, I mean, that date, like all these things, had been set months before. But fortuitously, it coincided with the uh, ASEAN meeting in Phnom Penh, the Cambodian capital, which took a dramatic turn, much as you know, the normal consensus that prevails in ASEAN diplomacy and governance broke down. Broke down completely, and it broke down because of the uh, issues of the South China Sea and the disputes that claimants, some ASEAN claimants, have there and their conflict with China. So the, the cause of the dramatic departure from ASEAN norms was a failure amongst the ten to agree on a common stance with regard to the South China Sea and in particular China's growing uh, maritime assertiveness. And the ASEAN solidarity was, was further undermined by the fact that four members, you, you know who they are, Vietnam, the Philippines, Malaysia and Brunei, have conflicting claims with China. And those countries felt, and felt strongly, that they did not have the solidarity they deserved from their uh, fellow members. Now, this was quite remarkable in an organization in the region that traditionally has laid such enormous stress on consensus, consensus domestically and consensus regionally. We saw in the course of 2011 and 2012 quite intense disputes between China and the Philippines over uh, islands which they respectively claimed in, in the, the South China Sea and quite, if I may say so, quite bullying uh, tactics assumed by um, uh, the PRC, uh, for example, ban, uh, banning on, 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 uh, temporarily on the, on the importation of um, Philippines uh, bananas and pineapples and discouragement of Chinese tourists visiting the Philippines. 
Now, there's a long history of conflict, of course, uh, and tensions in the South China Sea. Um, one thinks back to the 1970s. Um, I think it was in 1974, um, in the sort of dog days of the Vietnam War, that the Chinese seized from the gravely weakened South Vietnamese government the, the Paracel Islands. And there have been tensions uh, in other periods. In 1988, there were clashes between the Chinese and the Vietnamese, which left, I think, as many as 60 dead on the uh, Vietnamese side. But tensions have been rising in recent years, uh, and I think a variety of factors have contributed to that. Perhaps one is the whole question of the U.S. in the region, and especially what has, be has become known as the uh, pivot to uh, Asia and the Pacific. That may have increased um, the nervousness and apprehension in Beijing at the specter of um, a more assertive U.S. in the region and the fact that ASEAN countries want to cooperate with the United States. Not just, of course... Uh, traditional allies like the Philippines and uh, Singapore, but one of the most remarkable relationships uh, I see developing is that between the United States and Vietnam. And the fact that uh, officers of the uh, Vietnamese Navy and Air Force have visited with and uh, U.S. carrier groups and so on. And I, I, my, my sense is that that will develop further, although both Washington and Hanoi need to be careful about the calibration of that and the concerns that that will raise definitely in China. One thing I think that has changed uh, with regard to these disputes compared with, if you like, earlier rounds in the, the 1970s and the 1980s is that there's an element of domestic politics now involved in many of the ASEAN countries in that regard. Uh, you see it especially in the, in the Philippines, of course, which always has a fairly um, noisy and rumbustious uh, politics. And, but even to some extent in, in Vietnam, uh, last summer I think there were quite large demonstrations in Hanoi and in uh, Saigon. And although these were in a, in a one-party state, obviously uh, encouraged by the regime, there was a sense I had from talking to Vietnamese and, uh, and diplomats and so on, resident in the country, that uh, there was a strong popular element, as it were. One should um, never underestimate um, that strain of, of uh, anti-Chinese uh, feelings, which is still quite strong in many Southeast Asian countries, and particularly, I think, in Vietnam and in Indonesia. A few words switching back to U.S. positions. I don't think that the U.S. has necessarily handled this in a very adept manner in 2012. Hillary Clinton herself attended the uh, summit in, in uh, Phnom Penh. And prior to uh, attending that summit, she had visited three of China's neighbors, Mongolia, Laos, and Cambodia. Two of these countries, of course, like China, still ruled by communist parties. 
Indeed, she was the first U.S. Secretary of State to Laos since John Foster Dulles in 1955, a fact which was not lost on uh, some Chinese uh, commentators. In the, um, uh, what's the word, in the sort of uh, mythology of Chinese diplomacy, one of the first great international outings for the People's Republic of uh, China was the 1954 Geneva Conference on Indochina. And, of course, China was uh, represented by their great diplomat and foreign minister, the Zhou uh, Enlai, and Dallas refused to shake hands with Zhou Enlai, a, a sort of insult that is still remembered in the, the MFA in uh, Beijing as if it was, uh, was uh, last week. Clinton also, I thought, erred in making a, a speech in Ulaanbaatar, the Mongolian capital, in which she directly attacked the sort of model of economic development that retains authoritarian governance. And she praised countries like Mongolia and Burma, which were moving away from such models, although it seemed to uh, elude her speechwriter that, in fact, after that speech she was moving to two countries where the party and the comrades still managed affairs, namely Cambodia and uh, Laos. Looking at the, at the heart of the dispute, you know that the Indonesian uh, government has gone to great lengths, led by their very uh, able uh, foreign minister, Martin Atalagawa, to try and de-conflict uh, the situation, and in particular to um, develop a code of conduct. And this was one of the points on which the meeting last summer broke down. And, of course, one can have different codes of conduct. It can be a voluntary code of conduct. We all kind of have a gentleman's agreement and uh, respect that. But it would be far better, and I think this was the Indonesian intention, if there was a code of conduct that was legally binding. Now, sadly, I think this was anathema to China. And through the host of the uh, summit, uh, Cambodian government, that summit was wrecked. Now, things have got slightly better, it seems to me, in uh, the latter part of uh, 2012, inasmuch as I think there's a feeling in both China and in the ASEAN countries we cannot and should not let this get out of hand. But we cannot be complacent about the likelihood of this getting out of hand uh, again in the future. I think for a variety of reasons. Um, I, I mean, one, the, the claims that uh, the four ASEAN members, Vietnam, the Philippines, Malaysia, and uh, Brunei have, the fact that, I don't want to say that the United States has inserted itself into this conflict, but the fact that all of these countries have good relations uh, with the U.S., and uh, some of them treaty allies, obviously in the case of the Philippines, but the Vietnamese relationship with the U.S. is, I think, one of the most interesting, and to the Chinese, perhaps the most threatening, because you know the past relationship between uh, China and Vietnam, the fact that they fought uh, a bitter war in 1979. Another aspect that I find troubling about um, the, the present situation is the sort of mini-arms race that is now taking place in Southeast Asia. 
with many ASEAN members, for example, acquiring for the first time a capability with regard to submarines. I was in Jakarta last June, uh, as you mentioned, Andrew, with the parliamentary delegation, and we had a long discussion with the Defence Minister, Purnomo Yusuki-Antoro, where he talked about this deal that they have with South Korea to obtain as, as many as a dozen submarines. Now, I doubt that they can afford a dozen submarines, but in the end they may get five, and that in itself is worrying. I think Malaysia is buying submarines from a sort of Franco-Spanish consortium. Vietnam is acquiring six kilo-class submarines from, from Russia to be based at the old uh, Cameron Bay, U.S. base. And Thailand, I think, is purchasing German submarines. Now, this is worrying, um, and particularly with a vessel like a submarine, which, uh, you know, by definition, perhaps, is, is, is the most offensive maritime vessel and it's a, it's a form of naval warfare that none of the Southeast Asian uh, countries have any existing experience or expertise uh, with regard. I spoke also about the um, my concerns that the conflicts between China and ASEAN around the, the South China Sea Islands may coincide with growing anti Chinese feeling within many of those countries. Uh, there's a great deal of popular sentiment which is still uh, antipathetic to uh, Chinese minorities and also to um, uh, uh, China uh, itself. Of course, there are also economic imperatives behind the issues uh, in the South China Sea. The assumption that there are great oil and gas fields there but also the um, extraordinary amount of fishing um, uh, resources uh, that are in that region. And for China in particular, but also for uh, many of the other countries, they have to feed uh, growing populations. So let me conclude by saying I think at the beginning of 2014, we were in a somewhat better position than we were in the uh, middle of 2013 when the ASEAN Phnom Penh summit was um, torpedoed by this, this issue, but we can't take anything for granted here. It also seems to me that, as a sort of uh, former diplomat, as it were, that there is no clear diplomatic path on this, and that's something that concerns me a lot. The Indonesians uh, took a, a sort of leadership role in terms of trying to develop a code of conduct and my sense from talking to the foreign minister and others is that they feel a little bit burnt by this now, that it's been sort of treading heavy water, that it's uh, not made um, as, as much pros progress as it might. Indonesia, of course, is not a claimant to any of these islands, but when you look at China's lines on the map, they come peril perilously close to the Indonesian archipelago. Some have suggested, the International Crisis Group being one, that Indonesia could be a mediator between the ASEAN claimants and China. I don't, much as I respect Indonesian diplomacy on this, I, I don't think that that's a, a possibility. Uh, I mean, here in Australia, your, um, the Lowy Institute in, in, uh, in Sydney, in a, a report they did last year, suggested that Australia itself 
might t- take on the, the mantle of uh, this. Again, I'm not sure. I'm not sure the Australian government would want to take on this. And, of course, in the perception of China, uh, Australia is a key ally of um, the United States. I was going to say maybe it's something that Kevin Rudd would, might want to take on, but from uh, re- <coughs> reading the uh, newspapers here, he seems to have other things on his uh, mind at the moment. One of the things that I've uh, privately thought is um, that it's something that the United Nations could do. Indeed, you know, within the Charter of the United Nations is a paragraph which talks of the special offices of the Secretary General, which means that privately and discreetly the Secretary General, if there's a disputes between countries, A and B can approach them and say, look, you, you guys seem to have got into a mess here and uh, is there a role that we can play discreetly in, in, in moving things along and that was uh, something that uh, I hoped would um, get some traction I've um, spent time last year speaking to the Secretary General Ban Ki-moon about, about this somewhat he is Korean of course uh, so he knows the region and the, the dangers and the issues. But the problem with the, the good offices of the Secretary-General is this is only something you can to, do if both sides of the table agree to you doing that. And I think over the last um, several months that China has made it very clear to the Secretary-General that it doesn't want to see him assume this task. So that's where we are, it seems to me, um, which is not in a good place. This is an issue which is likely to recur in the sort of incidents that we've seen in the past between Chinese and uh, the Philippines and China and Vietnam are likely to recur at a time when the US is becoming, making its presence stronger in the region. And I think, sadly, for for all the progress that has been made in uh, ASEAN and in China itself, particularly in the uh, economic sphere, this is uh, one of those issues which um, threatens to undermine that by virtue of the fact that we have unresolved claims and a conflict that could easily start um, at any point. Andrew, I'll stop there for a minute. For more Griffith University podcasts, go to www.griffith.edu.au forward slash podcasts.